If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the March 23rd, 2020 Hazmat Edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The first edition in its 46-year history to be recorded at my dining room table. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Since we're social distancing this week and Governor Gavin Newsom has put all of California on lockdown, we explore something to download to read and a couple LGBT movies available to stream. But first... Some honest tea. Starting off with a story from LGBTQ Nation, Friday, March 20th, 2020, reported by Molly Sprayregan. What does self-isolation mean for homeless people? This lesbian priest wants to fight for them. Lesbian Episcopal priest Kim Jackson, a Democrat, wants to be Georgia's first out-LGBTQ state senator. Fighting for change, she told LGBTQ Nation, has always been a top priority. And right now, the Georgia State Senate is in dire need of more diverse representation. There is significant LGBTQ representation in the House of Representatives already, she said. But if you look at the anti-LGBT bills that have come forth, most are introduced in the Senate. And I think that's in part because they don't have any colleagues who are part of that community. Jackson is running in District 41, which encompasses parts of Atlanta. She has been endorsed by the LGBTQ Victory Fund and was also named one of Emory University's 2019 40 Under 40. Jackson, the first out queer person of color to be ordained in the Episcopal Diocese of Atlanta, believes Georgia state senators need an out colleague of faith to help change hearts and minds. Many Georgia legislators, she explained, and especially those supporting anti-LGBTQ and anti-abortion bills, are practicing Christians. A voice like hers is necessary to show them that religion and equality are not mutually exclusive. Georgia needs desperately a progressive voice that is theologically trained, who can speak directly to those issues, and talk about the way that there's A, a separation between church and state that we need to respect, and also B, our Christian theology is bigger and broader than what they've been bringing to the floor. Jackson has always used her role as a religious leader to fight for social justice. She is currently the interim vicar at Church of the Common Ground, which focuses on serving Atlanta's homeless population. The church does not have its own building. Rather, gatherings take place in public places like parks. As such, affordable housing is an important issue for Jackson in this race. She is also devoted to fighting the rising prices that prevent older people from being able to age in place. Right now, especially, Jackson says, as we are in the midst of the global coronavirus pandemic, the city's homeless population is in dire need of help. In order to get food if they're experiencing homelessness, people have been really at the mercy of churches, mosques, religious communities, and people of goodwill, Jackson explained. 
And now that people of goodwill are quarantined in their homes, food has become very difficult to come by in the state. And all of her wisdom in seeking to address this pandemic has failed to address that particular issue. As more of Georgia nears the possibility of a shelter-in-place directive, she continued, it won't mean much for those who have no shelter. I think this pandemic is exposing some of Georgia's greatest long-term gaps in our social fabric. We don't have affordable housing, so people are living on the street. People cannot access the medical care they need in the ways that they need it. We have not addressed the issue of homelessness, broadly speaking, but particularly for the pandemic. States outside of Georgia have put hand-washing stations outside in public parks. Georgia has failed to do that. The Democratic primary will take place on March 19th, I'm sorry, on May 19th, 2020. Jackson believes she stands out for her combined abilities to listen well, be empathetic, and think critically. I bring a fight with me and a willingness to speak up and to advocate and to insist that we do better for everyone. In addition to affordable housing, Jackson plans to fight for equitable school funding, voting rights protection, gun safety legislation, and Medicaid expansion. She also wants the LGBTQ community to know how honored she would feel to break such an important barrier. I'm incredibly humbled and proud to have that opportunity to make history in that way. She knows a victory could especially mean a lot to queer youth of color in her state. I do think a lot about kids who are queer, especially queer kids of color, who will have someone in the seat who looks like them, who loves like they do. And I think that really matters. Our next story comes from NBCNews.com, NBC-Out. Thursday, March 19, 2020, reported by Nico Lang. Lawmakers urge Trump administration to protect those with HIV amid coronavirus epidemic. Eleven Democratic senators called on the Trump administration Thursday to recognize the particular needs of people living with HIV as a response to the global coronavirus outbreak. In a letter to Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar on Thursday, the senators warned that the coronavirus poses a serious health risk to the estimated 1.1 million people in the U.S. who are HIV positive. The letter, which was shared with NBC News, says that this risk is heightened by barriers to health care access, exacerbated by the White House's own policies. Your agency's actions to reduce health care discrimination protections for members of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer LGBTQ community have created additional risks for this population during this national emergency, it states, further urging the federal government to take affirmative action to ensure everyone in the United States, including people living with HIV, can safely access COVID-19 testing, treatments, and support services. The letter, released the same day HHS was sued for axing LGBTQ discrimination protections, was signed by Senators Bob Menendez of New Jersey, Charles Schumer of New York, Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, Chris Coons of Delaware, Tammy Duckworth of Illinois, Kamala Harris of California, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, Gary Peters of Michigan, Chris Van Hollen of Maryland, and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. In a phone interview with NBC News, Menendez said the Trump administration has done nothing to increase services for people living with HIV, who health experts and advocacy groups say are particularly vulnerable to the coronavirus. The senator added that this population is right at the very heart of the crisis, but it never gets mentioned by the administration when federal authorities discuss groups threatened by infection. They've done a poor job of meeting the needs of the community at large, Menendez said. They certainly have been paying no particular attention 
to communities that have special needs. As of Thursday afternoon, there were more than 9,000 known cases of COVID-19 in the U.S., resulting in at least 140 deaths. Among the populations most profoundly affected are elderly individuals, those with a history of respiratory issues, and people with compromised immune systems. The latter group includes those living with HIV. Our final story is an inspiring one that comes from Advocate.com, March 20, 2020, reported by Tracy E. Gilchrist. Christian Siriano and his team are making masks for medical workers. The Project Runway alumna is working with New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's team on delivering viable face masks amid a shortage. Designer Christian Siriano and his team are sewing face masks for medical workers and others on the front lines of the battle against COVID-19. After the Project Runway alum made a public offer via Instagram and Twitter, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo took Siriano up on his offer and asked who else was willing to jump in to help quell the shortage of essential medical supplies. Siriano tweeted the offer to Cuomo on Friday. If at New York Gov Cuomo says we need masks, my team will help make some. I have a full sewing team still on staff working from home that can help. 18.4 thousand people are talking about this at that time. The offer came as Cuomo put out a call for protective gear due to a severe shortage of these face masks in the face of the pandemic. New York has a critical need for personal protective equipment, PPE, including gloves, gowns, and masks, as well as ventilators. If you have or can make any of these supplies, New York is buying. Please email covid19supplies at esd.ny.gov. That's C-O-V-I-D-1-9-S-U-P-P-L-I-E-S, COVID-19supplies, at esd.ny.gov. Help us share this far and wide. Following Siriano's offer, Cuomo tweeted a thank you and asked the designer to DM, direct message his team, for details. Before long, Siriano had tweeted a possible prototype of a face mask. We will be making a few versions of this in order to help as many people as we can. Here is the process so we can get a perfect fit. More to come. Thank you, everyone. We hope to get these to the right people, ASAP. The gear, known as N95 face masks, are intended to protect the wearer from airborne particles and liquid, according to ABC News. The United States currently has approximately 13 million N95 masks in stock, but the federal government has determined the country may need up to a billion over the next six months, ABC News reports. Siriano's offer to do his part during the crisis inspired others to offer their services. Kay Hagemeyer Jensen is working on some for hospitals in Wyoming. Headley and Bennett in Los Angeles has a 16,000 square foot factory, and they're making some here in Los Angeles. And Pamela Barsky has a small factory in the village in New York City, and they can make probably 500 a day. And that's the honest tea. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. Diversity in the animal kingdom, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Many laws attempt to condemn sexual behavior among humans of the same sex, calling it unnatural or against nature. But a new museum exhibit in Norway begs to differ. In October of 2006, the Oslo Natural History Museum opened the world's first educational exhibit about homosexuality among animals. According to the exhibit project leader Geir Soleil, quote, homosexuality has been observed for more than 1,500 animal species and is well documented for 500 of them. The sexual urge is strong in all animals. It's part of life. Despite opposition from conservative Christian groups, the exhibit has been well attended. 
The exhibit teaches that the animal kingdom encompasses many completely natural relationships among members of the same sex, not just short-lived ones, but also long-lasting partnerships that may last a lifetime. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry. The great Oscar Wilde once said, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. That's why it's imperative that we stay informed. So pull up your ears. An excellent way to do this is by listening to Southern California's longest-running radio program for the gay and lesbian community, IMRU. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. For the last few decades, IMRU's Pride on Screen has chronicled the opening of each new film in the queer canon. We've spoken to the creatives and casts. As we said last week, as more and more of these films become available to stream online, we've decided to revisit the best of these features. Last week, we started with one of the most iconic, Brokeback Mountain. And this week, we have two more classics, starting with the letter B. For Boys Don't Cry, Steve Pride spoke with its director, Kimberly Pierce, and star, Hilary Swank. Enjoy. In late 1993, down a quiet, dusty road in southeast Nebraska, in a ramshackle farmhouse, two ex-cons committed a multiple murder. Among the dead was a young man named Brandon Tina. The killer was John Lauder, a friend of Brandon and his girlfriend, Lana Teasdale. Death like life is never simple. What had prompted such rage? John Lauder had just found out something few in Falls City, Nebraska knew about Brandon Tina. That he was actually a girl named Tina Brandon. Boys Don't Cry from director Kimberly Pierce is much more than a fictionalization of these true events covered brilliantly in the 1998 documentary The Brandon Tina Story. The new film explores the fluidity of gender in a way seldom portrayed on screen, but is also a moving love story. Yeah, I got a thing for cows. I don't know a song about cows. My dad taught it to me. You're not going to sing it for me, are you? No. I can't sing to save my life. Me neither. What? Sure you can. You sing great. That wasn't me. It's karaoke. So, you were still great. I I couldn't do it. A lot of people I know couldn't. I spoke with writer-director Kimberly Pierce and asked her about the genesis of the film. In April of 1994, I picked up the Village Voice and read about Tina Brandon, who had transformed herself into her fantasy of a boy, girl from a trailer park, so she had limited economic means, you know, no role models. I was completely overwhelmed with that, fell in love with her story, Um, wanted to do honor to her, wanted to bring her back to life. Um, started looking around at the coverage on the story and saw that a lot of it was really sensational. Uh, people were focusing on the spectacle of a girl who had passed as a boy and really emphasizing the brutality of the crime. And I felt like that was was dangerous, and I wanted to counter that by bringing Brandon to life and making sense of him. So I started um, interviewing butch lesbians and transsexuals about their early histories, their fantasies, how they saw Brandon, and ultimately traveled with a group of transsexuals, 15 of them transsexual menace, which is now gender pack 
back to Fall City, the murder town. And with them, we stage a vigil on Brandon's behalf. I went to the murder trial and uh, retraced Brandon's footsteps and then went to the farmhouse where he was executed. And specifically, um, the murder trial was, you know, really fascinating because I just got to sit there and, and watch John Lauder and Tom Neeson. I ended up getting all 10,000 pages of the court transcripts. I photographed the court exhibits. It was brutal to look at the court exhibits, get all the autopsy reports. And what I wanted to do was gain access to every single detail that existed on the crime and then on the people. So I started interviewing the cops. Um, I ultimately returned two years later and I hung out with the kids at the quick stop. Beautiful kids who hang out all night, you know, at the wall. That's why they're called wall people. Class was very important to me. You know, I saw the farm kids who had their trucks. I saw the, the girls who raced them. I saw those girls. They're kind of the richer kids. And then my kids who, you know, don't have as much money. You know, just spent time with them to see how they spent their nights, what they did for adventure, um, what they knew about John Lauder. But probably the most important moment of that trip was I got to interview Lana. I saw her at the quick stop. She said I could come to her house. I came the next day, I knocked on her door, nobody answered. Knocked again, nobody answered. Went away, came back, eventually her mother answered and said, Lana's in the shower, you can come in. There was no explanation for why they didn't answer. And I told them I was making a movie on the story and they were really happy about that because they'd been very unhappy with the other portrayals at that point. And so I said, you know, my whole point is I wanna tell your story so you tell me what happened. They opened up, ultimately Lana came out and confided to me, you know, what the relationship with Brandon was like. Told me that she didn't answer the door because she thought I was Brandon. Um, and I don't look like Brandon. I mean, I had short brown hair, so some resemblance, but it's more a testament to the idea that I think Lana's looking for a sign of Brandon and needing to open up and needing to talk about the story. And then that really became the basis of the film, which was the tragic love story. I mean, the way that she confided her love of Brandon was so beautiful because it wasn't an absolute truth, which was, he's absolutely male, he's absolutely female. It was a kind of non-gendered soul love. You know, they loved one another, and society was forcing them to make categories about it, and I think that's why it kept changing. But it, uh, you know, many examples of, of why it was such a beautiful connection that the two of them had. Actress Hilary Swank, best known as Carly on Beverly Hills 90210, and as the wife of actor Chad Lowe, gives an Oscar-caliber performance as Brandon Tina. I ask her about her preparation and lessons learned. I lived my life for four weeks as a boy before I actually started filming just because I felt a really deep need to actually uh, really pass as a boy before I started filming so that it would just be doing the film a grave injustice to not pass as a boy. So living my life as a boy for four weeks and then filming for five weeks, I was in this character for so long that towards the end of it, I felt like I had lost every ounce of my femininity. I felt like there was not a piece of Hillary left. And that was a little scary. I didn't know if that was going to come back to me. I was trying to play the human side of it. I was trying to play the human side of the desire to follow your dream more than I was trying to play like a boy, a stereotypical boy. Although I had to do a little bit of that stereotypical stuff in order to pass, you know, um, the walk, a swagger, the way I sit and stuff. But as far as mentally, it wasn't like I was um, feeling mentally like a boy, but it, it definitely the physical appearance after a while um, does do something to your psyche. I can definitely tell you that it was very different for me to walk around in the world as someone that people couldn't define. A lot of people thought that I was a boy when I walked around. They used the pronoun he and him. And, um, but there was also times when people couldn't define what I was. If I couldn't fit into their stereotypical girl or boy and I fell between the cracks, it was a very lonely place. And, um, you, you know, I wasn't accepted. 
as readily as I am as a girl that people can define. So that was um, kind of sad for me to realize that there's people out there who live their lives. That's their life. I'm just an actress and I can go back to being, like I said, someone that people can define. So it was sad to me to think that there are actually people out there walking around and, and um, not being really accepted. So hopefully this movie will make people more accepting the people with seeming differences. This is the first feature film from writer-director Kimberly Pierce, and she devoted six years to the project. I ask her why. You know, the sheer fact that Tina Brandon transformed herself into a boy was extraordinary. I could not believe that this person walked the earth. And then when I went and sat in the farmhouse, I couldn't believe that the world had robbed us of her. I felt a responsibility to tell her story in a way that it, it wasn't being told, to be true to her. Um, I felt like I had insight on it that other people may not have had. And I really felt this obligation to make sense of why these guys... I mean, I fell in love with John Lauder in a way, too, with his story. You know, to try to figure out why her being a more effective man than they were, but the fact that she was doing it as a girl provoked such rage in them. You know, and then ultimately that just goes back to hate crimes. You look around and, you know, what motivated me to make the story is more relevant now than it was when I, I started it. I mean, there's a proliferation of hate crimes and whether that's against gender difference, whether that's against homosexuality, whether that's against race, whether that's against religion, it's widespread. And I think it's all coming out of the same hatred against difference. For I Am Are You, this is Steve Pride. Don't tell me what to do, don't tell me what to say, don't tell me what to wear. I had to cut my hair to lay a dress code on me. Don't tell me what to do, don't tell me what to say, don't tell me what to wear. I had to cut my hair to lay a dress code. I remember watching Boys Don't Cry at home by myself and afterwards just sitting there in sort of stunned silence. And a half an hour later, just this emotion washed over me because of the depth and breadth of what this person had gone through. So I'm so grateful to be revisiting some of these iconic classic films in the LGBTQI canon. Boys Don't Cry is available to rent online via YouTube, Amazon Prime Video, iTunes, Google Play, Hulu, and free with a Hulu or HBO subscription. And now another Pride on Screen. For the scoop on the Broken Hearts Club, Steve spoke with writer-director Greg Berlanti and star Timothy Oliphant. The Broken Hearts Club is about a group of gay West Hollywood friends in search of love, happiness, and grooming products. There's not a single film in the cinema canon that paints a portrait of a gay man that any of us would aspire to be. Can you imagine if they made a film about us, our group of friends? It boasts an attractive cast that features Timothy Oliphant as Dennis, the group's center and a promising West Hollywood photographer. As he prepares to celebrate his 28th birthday, Dennis laments, I'm 28 years old and the only thing I'm good at is being gay. That's not true. It is true. Dennis's eclectic crew of pals include Zach Braff as Benji, the innocent youth with spiky hair and a predilection for gym bunnies. Freaking out. I was in the middle of my squats and he comes over and just gives me these tips. Is that like fate or what? 
Maybe I should get his number. No way, little Benjamin. Gym bunnies make a bad name for all of us. Their lives revolve around sex and protein shakes. And cat tranquilizers. If you intend on experiencing the joys of a bitter codependent relationship, it's never gonna be with a gym bunny. Dean Kane as Cole, the charismatic actor who accidentally steals everybody's guy. So what are the chances of me getting your number? Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing someone. So was I. Matt McGrath as Howie, the psychology grad student who thinks too much and lives too little. Dumb, gorgeous people should not be allowed to use literature when competing in the pickup pool. It's like bald people wearing hats. <sighs> Rounding out the crew is Billy Porter as Taylor, the drama queen, Ben Weber as the cynical Patrick, and John Mahoney as Jack, beloved patriarch, softball coach, and part-time drag queen. Come, ye spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex him here. Now is not the time for Shakespeare in the living room. No, of course not. It's getting late. It's only 20 minutes to your next meaningless sexual experience. Ten if I'm lucky? Never if you're really lucky. Notice how subtly I'm ushering you towards the door. Notice how subtly I'm ushering you towards a healthier existence. Into this mix, like a lamb to the slaughter, stumbles Andrew Keegan as Kevin, the newbie, a young man not quite out of the closet. My mom mentioned that she made key lime pie. I said, that's great. I love key lime pie, and I'm gay. I bet she wishes she made apple pie. <sighs> With his all-American good looks and radiant smile, it's hard to believe 28-year-old writer-director Greg Berlanti could be behind anything called the Broken Hearts Club. Berlanti is currently the executive producer of the hit TV show Dawson's Creek and is the sort of upbeat, charming guy that most glad moms want their sons to marry. I ask him why he wrote the Broken Hearts Club. Honestly, to get a job, you know, I'd written nine scripts between plays and screenplays, and I'd been in Hollywood for three years, and I had had some success uh, as a theater writer in college. So I left my last temp job that I had out here and was determined to, I had two ideas. One was a big romantic comedy idea, and that I thought, oh my God, I'll sell this for, you know, a lot of money and I'll start working. You know, I was I was floating into Christmas. Like, I thought, at Christmas I can hit up my grandmother and I can get some more money. <laughs> you know, you're always banking on some period of time in which you have to sort of create something. And so uh, I, I sat down and what came out of me instead was was this small little story about this group of friends. And, and a friend of mine who had read a number of my scripts since college, she read it and said, uh, Greg, you have to finish this. And I don't care if you're not working. Like, finish this thing because maybe it will get you other work. And it was, it was that was exactly what I, I did and what I needed to do. Do and it was the, it really started my career. And how much of the Broken Hearts Club is based on his life? A significant portion of it. It's not exactly that. The tone of it is, I think, and the the nature of the relationships are and lines and elements. It's hard for me to tell where that line is because I would start to accumulate stories that weren't necessarily true, but were based more on truth or came out of something that had kind of happened, and then I had modified it or changed it, and and it was really a sort of a culmination of, of all those things. So it's it's hard for me to look back. The the one that's the most autobiographical is the Howie relationship relationship with Marshall, the, the pot smoker. I had a relationship that was sort of like that. And it was just funny to me that, that here I was sort of like, you know, I'd never tried drugs in my life. And I was dating somebody who was using them a significant amount of time. And I was more straight laced that way. And so really it just sort of was born out of that. And then I thought, okay, well then I've got to tell maybe the other elements of this. And, and uh, this is a story I really haven't told, but there was a day where we were shooting the, that scene in the car between them. And the truck that was pulling the car turned a corner, and I looked up and I realized I was on the exact street where that man had lived, where we had had that conversation a thousand times right in Hollywood. There is always pressure on a neophyte filmmaker to just sell the script and let someone else direct. According to Berlanti... That's actually what I tried to do. I, I, I was finally working as a writer, and I didn't want to jinx that. 
and, and you know, because I come from a Catholic upbringing, that was like, you know, don't, don't, don't ruin it. Uh, so uh, it was about a year and a half after I finally was working, and and the producer, to his credit, uh, Mickey Liddell, was really the one who said, you know, I think you're the person for this, and and I'll make it if you direct it, and was really persistent and was uh, very convincing, and said, look, I've done five or six of these things, and and he stood by my side the whole time after every shot and after ever in every phase of this project, and has really sort of walked me through it, and so every phase that this movie sort of hit a new kind of level I've said well you know the worst can happen is I can give the script out to people and they won't like it you know and then then it's the worst that can happen is you know you don't get the cast and then you get a good cast and the worst that can happen is you know they'll release it through their video arm that they had originally financed it through and not get a, a theatrical release then they see the dailies and that changes you know and then uh, four days after we finished it someone said well, why don't you cut something together in about 24 hours and we'll get it to Sundance and see what happens and then we're at the closing premiere at Sundance so it's every phase has been that kind of I just I just keep trying to say the same thing which is well, the worst that can happen is this movie will come out and nobody will go see it. And hopefully uh, the, the same laws that have applied to every other phase of the project will apply to this phase. A question asked so often, it's become cliche, but did Berlanti consider sexuality in casting? My rule about whether or not they were gay was whether or not they seemed like they could be like one of my friends who happened to be gay, you know? And that was, that was the only rule that sort of kind of applied once they walked in the room. I gave the last word to the star of the film, Timothy Olfent who said of his director... The only thing that kind of came up was, you know, every now and then we'd act too gay or something. You know, that was kind of... Uh, we always made this uh, gay meter joke. Cut. I was just way too gay. Do it again. Less gay. That was Greg's biggest direction, I think, throughout the whole film. Cut. Tim, you're too gay. Be less gay, please. Do it again. Ben Weber, that's too straight. Try to be more gay. Let's do it again. That was it. That was... That was Greg's job when it comes down to it. This has been Steve Pride. The Broken Hearts Club is a Sony Classics release. Thanks for listening. Man, I'm feeling lonely. Someone telephone me. It's getting hard to pass my time. Take me out of dancing. Watch me while I'm smiling. Baby, it's a waste of time. Any of us have gone through a relationship, or more than one relationship over the years, can certainly identify with wanting to form their own broken hearts club. So this one, might, I might have to watch a, a few more times. The Broken Hearts Club is available to rent on Amazon Prime Video, Vudu, YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Albatross, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Researchers have long known that same-sex couples are common in the animal kingdom. Over 1,500 animal species are known to practice same-sex pairings, including bears, gorillas, bees, owls, penguins, and whales. Lindsay Young and other colleagues at the University of Hawaii found that about a third of Lazen albatross pairs consist of two unrelated females. Many are monogamous, with both parents pitching in to help raise a single hatchling. Young said, the longest we've seen them stay together so far is 19 years. If a male comes up to one female in the pair, the second female gets really possessive. Young also suspects same-sex pairings occur with other seabirds, saying, this may be a lot more common than we realize, so the race is on to find out. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Billy Bean, Major League Baseball's Ambassador for Inclusion. And you are listening to I Am Are You Radio Magazine. I am, are you? I am, are you?
Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. In the 1950s, a suburban housewife named Anne Bannon, writing under the name Anne Weldy, was the queen of the lesbian pulp novel. Steve Pride sat down with the icon and filed this report. Anne Bannon is the pen name of the most popular writer of iconic lesbian pulp novels of the late 1950s and early 60s. Her six books were Odd Girl Out, I Am Woman, Women in the Shadows, Journey to a Woman, The Marriage, and Bebo Brinker. According to the Bloomsbury Guide to Women's Literature, Bannon's character, Bebo Brinker, has come to personify the 1950s Bar Butch and her ongoing search for true love. But the real-life Anne Wilde was a wife and mother when she wrote these books. Anne, take me back 50-plus years. How did Anne Wilde become Anne Bannon? Well, it was clear to me and reinforced by my very nervous husband that there was no way I could put my actual name on the front of one of those wild and woolly <laughs> paperback covers. It would end up for sure across the nearly bare bosom of a very seductive lady. And he said, I never want to see that. So I had to find a pen name. It was partly that, and it was partly the problem of sheer terror at being found out. So I went through all kinds of names, and finally one evening my husband had brought home a list of prospective customers. He was a salesman at the time. And on the list was the name Bannon. And I thought, gee, that's nice. And it puts me up at the front of the alphabet. So it had everything to recommend it. <laughs> Plus, nobody knew who it was. Did your husband read your books? No, he's still living. He's in his late 80s. But he confessed to me about three or four months ago that he had read only one of them. And that was the first one, Odd Girl Out. And he didn't read it until decades after it had been published and republished by many different publishers. He did, on the other hand, read a few pages when I was writing it. Made him very nervous. But I won an Oscar for being a nice young housewife and mom, and that reassured him. I was very conventional outwardly. And he found it difficult to talk about. He didn't want to believe it. He assumed that I was just jumping on the same bandwagon with a few other women who were writing original pulp paperbacks at the time. And it was very successful. And when my royalty checks began to come in, he cheered up demonstrably. So how did it all start? How did you become a writer? I always wrote, and I think providentially at that time, I found on the bookstore shelves a paperback reprint of uh, Radcliffe Hall's novel, The Well of Loneliness, which I found riveting and infuriating because it went from one gloomy crisis to the next, but at least it was a lesbian story and a very interesting one. And practically right next to it on the drugstore shelf was the first lesbian pulp original by an author named Vin Packer, and the book was called Spring Fire. And it was a college romance between two young women who were sorority sisters. And I thought, oh, Eureka, I just got out of college. I was in a sorority. I know about this, too. 
So I sat down with my husband's old Remington portable at the dining room table, and I started telling the story as cautiously as I could. I ended up with almost 600 pages, mostly about a handsome young fellow who meets one of the two girls in the story, and they end up getting married and going off hand in hand. In the meantime, I wrote to the author of Spring Fire and said, rather portentously, I too have written a novel. And I don't know why she didn't throw my letter in the wastebasket at that very moment, but she got kind of intrigued and she wrote back. And the upshot was she invited me to New York. I was living in Philadelphia, and she said, if you can get up here, I will introduce you to my editor, and you bring your manuscript, and we'll see what he thinks. Well, it took me a while to talk Ward Cleaver into letting this happen, and he finally caved when I told him that I had found an all-women's hotel and that I would stay in the all-women's hotel. (laughs) And he said, well, then that makes it okay, but you have to promise me you'll stay at the women's hotel. So I did. And I went up there. I met Vin Packer, who turned out to be a remarkable woman still writing. Her real name is Mary Jane Meeker. She's written as Anne Aldrich and M.E. Kerr and various other names. Absolutely brilliant and very interesting. And she took me over to the Gold Medal Books offices near Times Square and introduced me to Dick Carroll, who was the editor-in-chief an old movie guy. He'd written film scripts. He'd been a film editor. And uh, they brought him into gold medal to see if he could handle the new original paperback section. So he read the book as a courtesy to Mary Jane in just a couple of days. And I went in to meet him with my knees knocking. And he said very kindly, you know, this is not a good book. But he saw something in it. And what he saw were the two sorority girls of my story, Beth and Laura, whom I had carefully shunted off to a shadowy corner. And he said, bring those girls center stage. They are your story. And uh, go home, rewrite the book. It should be half the length it is now. And tell the story of the two girls, which rocked me because I thought I had been so subtle that nobody would pick up on the fact that the girls were romantically interested in each other. So I went home. I cut the length of the book in half. I told the story of Beth and Laura and brought it back with some terribly proper title, like Same Time, Same Place, which had nothing to do with anything. And within a week, I heard back from Dick Carroll. He said, we love it. We're going to publish it. The title of the book is now Odd Girl Out. This has been part one of a conversation with iconic lesbian pulp author Anne Bannon. Now I shout it from the highest hills Even though the golden daffodil Secret love's no secret and
This is IMRU Radio Magazine, and you're listening to Steve Pride's interview with author Ann Bannon. I'm Ann Bannon, and I am the author of a series of novels printed in the 1950s and 1960s that have come to be known as the Bebo Brinker Chronicles, and which were part of a small group of original pulp paperbacks on the theme of lesbian life and loves back in that difficult era. So who was Bebo Brinker? Bebo was my fantasy butch, and I kind of dreamed her up based in part on a sorority sister who had the look, but not the emotional engagement. But she was a a beautiful gal, very tall, actually a honey blonde, where Bebo has darker hair. But I took off from that, and I was trying to think who she would be, how she would be, if only I could meet her walking around a corner in Greenwich Village. And I was struggling with this. I knew she would look like a blend of Ingrid Bergman and Johnny Weissmuller. I mean, she was going to be this otherworldly, wonderful, fantasy, buccaneering young butch. And I couldn't quite nail her down until I remembered a name from my childhood. One of my classmates couldn't pronounce her name as a little girl. And it was Beverly, and she came up with Bebo, And I thought, my God, that's it, Bebo. And the name Brinker came to me, and then suddenly I had her whole and entire, as they say. And although I never met the real Bebo, I have met women that came pretty close, (laughs) that always kind of grabbed me by the heartstrings. So I started with that. She was quite a heller, and she had a lot to rebel against in those times. But she would take jobs that uh, um, permitted her to wear pants. Um, She bravely and foolishly uh, looked butch. And, of course, those were the days when you had to choose. Are you butch or are you femme? And there's a wonderful story about that that Robin Tyler tells when she was very young and naive. And she came out to some lesbian friends and they said, well, which are you, butch or femme? She said, well... What's the difference? And they said, well, you know, the femme does the dishes, and she does the dusting and vacuuming. And Robin said, I'm a butch. <laughs> so Bebo was just born butch, farm kid from Wisconsin, and big, handsome girl. And she had to learn to be as self-assured and sophisticated as she looked, and she did learn that. What was the gay and lesbian scene in the village like in the 50s? It really was kind of a magical place. I've described it as Dorothy landing in Munchkin land and opening the door and everything suddenly in technicolor, beautiful, fun, and amazing to be able to walk down a street in Greenwich Village and see two guys or two gals holding hands, everyone being perfectly friendly, nobody shocked, nobody remonstrating with you for doing that. It was a charming and a charmed place. It wasn't the only place in the world where wonderful things were happening. I know Los Angeles had a lively community, and they were very active politically with the Mattachine Society. San Francisco was developing the Daughters of Belitis with uh, Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin. Some scholarly works were coming out. Even Dr. Kinsey took an interest in all this. 
and uh, published, I think, in 1954, his, his book about the sex life of the human female, which was occasion for rejoicing and opening of champagne bottles in some quarters. But the village itself truly was a sort of mecca for young gay and lesbian people. I was thrilled to have been there. And then, because my life took me so far away, it was another 45, 46 years before I was able to get back. And uh, it's still seductive. It's still charming. But now it looks quite sleek and prosperous. And when I was there in the 50s and early 60s, it looked a little shabby and down at heel. But I don't think any of us minded. It was just so much fun and so validating to be with people who were perfectly bright, sensible people, but who happened to be LGBT people. And they were also the wittiest and the most creative and the most fun to talk to and to tangle with. So I met a lot of people who, some of whom I remember clearly, many of whom I remember fuzzily, but all of whom I remember fondly. <laughs> You've written all these love stories that have been read by millions of people. Do you ever find your Bebo? I came close a time or two. Some wonderful women have passed in and out of my life. I'm not partnered now, but it's okay. I am buried in grandchildren, grand doggies, lots of people in my life, and lots of writing still to do. But, you know, you never give up. <laughs> Any regrets? One thing I can say I kind of regret is that I didn't realize how seriously they were taken and how much they were needed, the, the old books. Women now say they hid them behind the fridge or under the mattress or in a shoebox in the closet, and they were their treasures. They did live in fear that a parent or an older sibling would find them, and they'd be in big trouble, and it did happen to a few of them. But some of them have cherished those books for, it's now over half a century. It was 1957 when Odd Girl Out was published, and how life-affirming they were for most of them. And the other side of that is, I suppose if I had known when I was writing that I was doing something that would be remembered for so many years, it might have paralyzed me. I've been talking to iconic lesbian pulp author, Ann Bannon. For more information, you can visit her personal website at annbannon.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Once I had a secret That lived within the heart of me All too soon my secret love Became impatient to be free Several of Anne's books are available on Amazon for shipping or download to Kindle. There's even an audible version of Odd Girls Out. Well, there is still a few minutes left. Enough time for a last word. And tonight, that's an audio essay by Joel Perry about a common pre-virus activity. One Man's Food by Joel Perry. Food, glorious food. Chewy, gooey, or crunchy. I look at going into a grocery store as a battle to get out with the most food for the least money. 
I enter with sale items memorized in a thick stack of coupons. I compare prices and read labels. I am a sensible shopper and an aware consumer, and it all goes out the window when Fred decides he wants to come along. Now, Fred is the love of my life and a joy to know. He is also a food packager's wet dream. When he sees a bright and shiny can of Pillsbury cinnamon rolls with icing or a beckoning box of Ritz Bit sandwiches and peanut butter or cheese, his eyes glaze over like tasty cakes. No amount of, but this is half the price of that, works. His is a force against which I am powerless and I must resign myself to the fact that I will not be paying cash this trip. Fred likes food that is fun. That includes anything with pockets, pouches, or toaster in the name. Oh, and it has to sound jolly to make or eat. Cheese poppers, snack wraps, bagel bites, apostrophes and silly spelling increase the fun quotient. The very kicky dippin' sticks with an X had both, so he bought two boxes. Anything with mmm in the middle, like shake mmm bake or brown mmm serve, and he's out of control. We have two cats, and he still tried to buy kibbles mmm bits. A can of frosting is way fun. How, I asked, struggling to understand, it just sits there in the can. As if explaining to a child, he told me, Frosting is fun because you can put it on anything and it improves everything. If somebody invents a product called Toastin' Poppin' Fun Sticks with an X mm, frosting, I'll never see him again. Fred is a sucker for the current campaign of making food cute by making it small. He adores small. Frozen petite quiches, buffalo chicken wings, mini baby bell cheeses. In a perfect world, Fred would live on appetizers and croutons. I have to remember it was Fred who came up with the small diet. On the small diet, you can eat whatever you want as long as it sounds small. Baby Ruth. Junior Mints, Little Debbies, and we buy them all. I blame Kraft for this trend in the tiny and twee. The world was perfectly happy with regular-sized marshmallows till Kraft foisted jet-puffed miniatures on us in the 60s. Then Nabisco got in the act by making their horse-choking bales of shredded wheat spoon-size. You can just hear the marketing meetings. Sir, our research indicates we could sell more Oreos if our cookies were cuter. Oh, well, how do we do that? By making them teeny-weeny and itty-bitty. Lab results prove that at precisely one half inch around, the Oreo becomes quantifiably darling. But there's an even more amazing finding. With only slightly altered packaging in a different grocery aisle, we can call it cereal. For Fred, some foods fall into the nostalgia category. Wonder Bread, Pop-Tarts, Hostess Fruit Pies, ooh, corn dogs on a stick, he wistfully crooned as he lovingly placed a frozen three-pound box in the cart. He was upset that Franco-American had taken their classic SpaghettiOs and made them into, among other things, Where's Waldo Pasta? He wasn't sure he wanted to find Waldo or any part of him in his pasta and sauce. Good humor bars and ice cream drumsticks are also part of Fred's childhood, although he is disdainful of the people who make Klondike bars. He feels they've turned their backs on tradition by offering such travesties as almond, Neapolitan, and cappuccino flavors. He wanted to substitute Eskimo pies, but felt there was something vaguely demeaning and anti-Inuit in the name. He settled for vanilla ice cream sandwiches because, if they're sandwiches, I can eat them for lunch, right? Fred likes Canadian bacon because it's round, tidy, and imported. He didn't care for any of the strip bacon, though, until he saw a pack of lean turkey strips cunningly called Mr. Turkey. Nothing charms Fred like an animal, especially if it has an anthropomorphic name. I managed to use this to my advantage, though. Fred would ask if I thought we should get such and such an item, and I'd say, I don't know. Why don't you ask Mr. Turkey? Oh, that's right. You can't. He's dead. After doing this about three times, Fred scowled and said I'd spoiled it for him. 
He went back to the bacon section to return the late Mr. Turkey. Fred discovered the world of Oscar Mayer Lunchables. These are marvels of overpackaging, offering six crackers, one half ounce of sliced pressed meat, a cube of cheddar, a pouch of sugary juice, a tiny candy bar, and the notion that this could possibly be a balanced meal. He liked the concept, but this was all too much, even for him. In our good friend Frozen Foods, though, he found a brand called Kid Cuisine, which was similar to Lunchables, except they made a stab at actual nourishment. You could choose their Cosmic Chicken Nuggets for the New Age star child on the go, High-flying fried chicken, which begged the question of how high can a dead fried frozen bird fly, or magical macaroni and cheese. That last one was not only magical, but a wonder in monochrome, containing macaroni and cheese, corn, applesauce, and three lemon cookies. Too yellow, declared Fred, knowing that jewel tones complimented him best. Another brand, Fran's Healthy Helpings, offered a meal in a tray called Lucky Ducky Chicken, with the chicken pressed into grim little duck shapes. I can't imagine that being seen in a positive light by either chickens or ducks. It's certainly not lucky for either. There was another meal from Fran called, I swear to God, Lovey Dovey Patty. It comes with heart-shaped pasta, a burger with a heart baked into the bun, and instructions on clotting because anyone forced to be seen eating this in a schoolyard can be guaranteed of being beat up. How healthy is that, Fran? In the deli section, Fred found a package of half a dozen vacuum-sealed cheese balls. They're like bonbons and a party, he cried, tossing them into the basket. They're like constipation and a heart attack, I said, tossing them out. I don't know why I bother, though. The man can eat anything and it doesn't affect him. He eats Slim Jims by the yard. He will eat jerky from any land-based animal. I am certain he has ingested so many nitrates that if you sliced him, he'd look like prosciutto. When we got it all home, it was amazing how little food there was and how happy Fred was about it. He hummed merrily as he put cans of cheese whiz in the cabinet and fistfuls of turkey gobble sticks with an X in the fridge. You know, I think I'll have some egos, he tells me, beaming. Want some? I remain distant and aloof. Call me old-fashioned, but I don't think waffles should be prepared vertically. That's okay, though. He has his food, and I have mine. I am the purest. I am the sensible one. I am eating a moon pie. Hey, Fred, I asked, mouthful of marshmallow and cake. Where'd you put that? Frosting. Oh, please. Just let me wallow in my, I'm happy swallow in my, just let me wallow in my junk. I dip Pop-Tart. How I love to dip Pop-Tarts in cans of Crisco. everybody the breakfast of champions oh please just let me wallow in my well that's the end of our show we know you have choices on your radial dial and appreciate your spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. 
You can also listen to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Stitcher, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night and stay safe. You give me fever When you kiss me A fever when you hold me tight Fever In the morning Fever all through the night Sun lights up the daytime Moon lights up the night I light up when you call my name And you know I'm gonna treat you right You give me fever When you kiss me A fever when you hold me tight Fever In the morning A fever all through the night Everybody's got the fever That is something you all know Fever isn't such a new thing Fever started long ago Romeo loved Juliet Juliet, she felt the same When he put his arms around her He said, Julie, baby, you're my flame Now give the fever When you kiss him, fever if you live and learn Fever Till you sizzle What a lovely way to burn What a lovely way to burn What a lovely way to burn What a lovely way to burn